So you always want to be prepared to... To set goals. To be really disruptive. Diversity is fundamental. It is just trusting those super strengths. To recover from those failures and, and learn from them. Humility looks like the softest word, but it's kind of the hardest. We ourselves are in beta mode. Life goes on. Sporting Edge, inside the mind of champions. Welcome to the Inside the Mind of Champions podcast. My name is Jeremy Snape. I'm a former England cricketer with a master's degree in sports psychology. Since retiring, I've been fortunate to work with and interview some of the world's most successful thinkers and performers. And I'm passionate about translating their habits and routines into practical strategies to help you become more successful. In each episode, I'll be dissecting a common performance challenge to help you improve your mindset, your leadership and your team performance. To me, our mindset is the next frontier. So let's find out why. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Inside the Mind of Champions. It's been a really busy week for me designing and delivering some fascinating leadership sessions for my clients in technology, financial services and pharmaceuticals. The key themes at the moment seem to be around firstly getting our team's mindset ready for change and that takes some curiosity, some courage and some ambition to get through some of those painful periods of change because often when we've proved our competence of working with certain software or working in a certain way, it takes a bit of a leap of faith then to be able to relearn new Uh, approaches and and find new ways because sometimes we have to get worse and it gets messier and feels like we're making more mistakes before we can get better and feel the benefit of that. And then the second key theme really has been around leaders trying to create a new shared vision uh, for their business as they look to reinvent themselves or at least sharpen or redirect their strategic focus in 2022. So getting people behind a change program and a new vision has been another thing. So it's been fascinating to see how different leaders and different business cultures approach these issues. And I'm thrilled that we can share some of our inspirational video content from leaders in sport, the military or performing arts to showcase how other proven leaders have navigated these age old problems. And it's been a shocking few weeks for cricket. I'm sharing some thoughts today that I wrote in a LinkedIn article last week. Um, There are a great deal of comments on this topic and coming from people from all over the world. So I'd love you to share your perspectives on it. So feel free to come over to LinkedIn and and connect there and join that discussion. It's all about the Azim Rafiq whistleblowing case and it's found a a real spotlight on individual words, a toxic organisational culture and it's sent seismic cracks through the game of cricket's core values but I know we've got lots of people around the world that aren't cricket fans so you might have missed this story so this is not about cricket particularly but it's about racism within one sporting culture and one sporting club that has echoes across sport and across wider society and as a former player I've watched in disbelief as cricket has made the front page and the news headlines day after day we're certainly not used to that When the story broke, I knew very little about Azeem as a cricketer, but by Wednesday in that week when it broke, I knew his entire backstory. The details he raised were shocking and unacceptable regarding the racist language and treatment 
he received from his teammates at Yorkshire Cricket Club, but I thought he handled himself brilliantly throughout the public inquiry that was live on television. The Department of Digital, Culture, Media and Sport Select Committee has rightly raised the profile of this pivotal case and issue and suggests that an independent regulator should be put in place to ensure swift and sustained change takes place across the game. There are several impacts here, firstly on the mental health and well-being of the individual recipient of the racist abuse, and secondly on their performance. How can a team that's trying to win out on the sports field hamper the contribution of some of their own team by making them feel like second-class citizens? Many of my corporate clients want to create a more inclusive culture, so I've met and interviewed some great thought leaders in this space for our digital library. One insight that explores the positive aspects of being inclusive comes from Professor Bina Candola, who's a psychologist and an expert in this field. Something like 85% of people say that when they feel included, they are more motivated, they're more engaged, they're more productive. Um, I mean, roughly speaking, you know, it's, kind of, it's, it's 85%, it's there or thereabouts. So there's some tre- tremendous benefits for organisations in that regard. You get, more, you get people that are valued, engaged, motivated, productive. It kind of makes sense. Interestingly, there's also benefits for the individual. Uh, other research has shown, psychology research has shown, that individual psychological well-being is higher when they can be themselves at work. And it kind of makes sense too. If you're hiding more of yourself behind the screen, then you're, 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 you are going to be guarded in terms of how you talk about yourself or how you behave or how you react to things. Uh, so psycho- psychological well-being is higher. Resilience is higher where people feel, uh, where people feel valued and included at work. And you know, they're going to support one another whenever there's a setback. Uh, and, and, and thirdly, uh, people are more courageous. Uh, when, when, they're, when they're included, they are more likely to speak up about bad things that are going on in the organisation. So there's tremendous benefits for the organisation, but also there's, there's, there's significant benefits for an individual. So with the war on talent that we all face, surely we want our team members to feel safe, included, and that they can be courageous to tackle the challenges that our competitors are going to throw at us. That's enough without having factions and infighting within our own dressing room or our boardrooms. But this is clearly a much deeper societal issue and I struggle to give pithy quotes and solutions to that. The story coming from Yorkshire Cricket changed on a day-by-day basis and by Thursday there was a plot twist with Azeem himself being in the spotlight for sharing an anti-Semitic message in a, in a text exchange 10 years ago. We could have predicted this, that thousands of social media commentators then were so quick to discredit his initial claims based on the hypocrisy of the situation, basically saying that let those who live in glass houses cast the first stone and all that. But they were missing the point. The historic phrases and language that his teammates used were repulsive. But one side comment that he made in his statement worried me about the future, that he wouldn't want his children to get into cricket and get involved in the game. When I heard that, I felt a real conflict because I'm proud to have played and coached cricket for over 20 years. It's allowed me to travel the world and make some amazing friends across different cultures. These cultures are as diverse as the Afghan 
Kenyan, Indian, West Indian, Sri Lankan and South African national teams and franchise teams. I've seen the spirit of cricket transform individuals' lives and communities, so I'm not prepared to accept that the game is the problem and that we shouldn't be looking to introduce our youngsters and our children into that environment. So after a little bit of reflection, my personal take is this, that 60 odd years ago, that the migrant workers were called to rebuild Britain after the wars. And there was an obvious cultural clash of us and them as hardworking Indian and West Indian tradespeople drove, manufactured and rebuilt Britain's infrastructure and Britain's confidence. This influx of migrant workers was rapid and the natural culture clash generated an intolerant belief and language system that was all about division rather than inclusion. Since then, international migration has accelerated and become the norm as we're all free to find work and live wherever we choose across the globe. Over time, we've seen greater integration and a blurring of cultural boundaries. I saw some research from Ancestry.com where they analysed the genetic history of 2 million people worldwide using home DNA testing kits and it examines a person's entire genome and links it to over 700,000 different genetic locations. The results reveal the genetic ethnic makeup of the average, in inverted commas, person in the UK, if that exists, and that the countries and regions that they can trace their ancestry back from over the last 500 years. They found that the average UK resident is 36.94% British, and that's Anglo-Saxon. And in turn, the Angles and the Saxons were actually settlers of Germanic origin who came to the UK after the fall of the Roman Empire in 400 AD. So just 36% of our average person's DNA is what we would call British and you know, as a dynamic island, it's impossible to identify what it means to be British by one single genetic story. I'd rather be defined by being inclusive to all cultures. So that binary belief and language system has softened through time as cultures have merged and worked and socialised more closely. And sports played a huge role in accelerating that here as people from different cultures all cheer for England in cricket, football and rugby but there are still some sharp and painful edges. And as a middle-aged white man, I can't begin to imagine a life of prejudice and exclusion, but I don't want to create or perpetuate that for other people that I interact with. I was gripped by the words of former international cricketers and now commentators Michael Holding and Ebony Rainford Brent last summer as they explained their experiences of racism and inequality in the game. Sport is fueled by emotion so it can polarise or galvanise people. And after retiring and retraining in psychology, I was lucky enough to work with the South African cricket team as they rose to number one in the world rankings between 2008 and 2011. For the first time in their history, their cricket team was truly representative of the Rainbow Nation with seven different cultures including Muslim, Afrikaans, Corsa and English players within it challenge was that it had never been harnessed as a competitive advantage. So the diversity was a reason for cliques and division. 
alongside team culture expert Owen Eastwood that we're going to hear from in a moment and the team's senior leaders, we ran a project to tackle this and found this ancient African philosophy called Ubuntu, which Nelson Mandela was so passionate about. Ubuntu basically says that you can't judge your success in life by your personal status or your wealth, but you can only judge your success in life by the impact you have on others. It's our connection with others that makes us human. Imagine if our impact on others was the only way we were judged and rewarded. Imagine the kind of culture that would create and society that would create. Suddenly our words and our deeds and our interactions with others would be the only tangible value. When we presented this philosophy of Ubuntu back to the team, it became their shared purpose that would galvanise these characters from really different backgrounds and faiths together into one formidable team. Their skill was undeniable, but did they have the character to put their team first and help their peers from very different backgrounds to realise their potential? Could they see that beyond winning, they represented 50 million people who looked to them with hope of what a tolerant and inclusive culture could be? Far from being the problem, cricket was a beacon of hope. Through that period, the Proteas cricket team created a culture which is one of the best I've ever seen. It balanced individual ambition and dedication with selfless sacrifice to the team's higher goals. Clubs, schools and communities from every corner of South Africa looked on as their heroes won, together. The interlocking arms of their team huddle was a mirror for every community in the land and inspired thousands of people to believe in a brighter future. The players understood their responsibility to lead their communities and the nation forward in an inclusive way. As I zoom back into the granular comments made by Azim's teammates a decade ago, I genuinely feel for him and anyone else that's experienced this. It's easy to say it was a one-off, a different era, a single club or it's a society issue. The problem with that is that it leaves us powerless and makes it someone else's problem. The fact is that we all contribute to society through our words, our actions and our choices so we should consider whether our contribution is uniting or dividing people further. Our real challenge is to use this scandal in cricket to reflect on times in our own lives when we've said or done things which have excluded, embarrassed or even humiliated others. It could even be that we've stood and watched and heard things but said nothing to challenge them. By ignoring it, we're complicit. We must become actively intolerant to become anti-racist and this can only be done if we take personal accountability. In this insight, Joe Candola, Binner's wife and another respected expert in the field, explains how subtle signals in our behaviour can leave people feeling devalued and isolated and the role leaders play in ensuring our working and social environments are as inclusive and fair as possible. So as human beings, we naturally will gravitate towards people that are like us or that we feel we have something in common with, whether it be our gender, our, 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 our ethnicity 
or whether we support a particular team at sport or we've got a hobby in common or whatever. But so in groups, we form in groups. We, we try to get surround ourselves with people that are like us on whatever the relevant dimension is in that context. Um, in the workplace, we see these in groups and out groups forming. So um, it could be around gender, it could be around race, it could be actually just that the, all these people like uh, support a particular football team or whatever. When you're in the in group, you feel protected, you are safer. People will jump in to support you if you are challenged by other people from an out group and your contributions are remembered. So if you do a piece of work, people in your group remember it, the in-group may remember it. Often the in-group is the more powerful group as well. The out-group is a minority group. If you're in the out-group, your contributions aren't remembered, you have to work harder to prove yourself, um, and you feel alienated. You are not included in the, the kind of informal network, the informal conversations that are going on, and so therefore if you're not included in that, you don't necessarily have the information you can do to do your job as well, and as a consequence, therefore, you may not perform as well because you're being excluded from some critical pieces of information. So there are massive consequences to these in-groups and out-groups. Um, psychologically, that has a very detrimental point on uh, impact on the individual. I feel like I don't belong. My contributions are not valued. I'm working so hard here and I feel I'm achieving as much as uh, my colleagues are, but, but people are overlooking me. If I make a mistake, it is noticed more, whereas their mistakes are forgotten. That has a huge impact on people and they're either going to opt out and just sit and coast in their job, which is not good for an organisation. It's not That's not what you want out of your people. You want them all performing at their optimal level. Um, or they're going to leave. And you've potentially let somebody walk out the door that could be a huge talent and a huge resource to you. So it, it has an impact on the organisation, but it also has an impact on the individual. It, it starts undermining their confidence. They start questioning whether this is really, am I really um, not good at this? And actually then their performance goes down, which reinforces the belief that they're not so good, but it's because they haven't had access to the information. So they get caught in a, a real a spiral of actually, is this my fault? Has a, is that has a major impact on people. Um, and it's the, it's the leader of that team and the members of that team responsibility to spot when they're networking or speak who they're speaking to and how often they're speaking to and are certain people being excluded from these teams. It's their responsibility to pull them in, not for the people on the outskirts in the outgroup to try and get their way in. So Azim Rafiq was in the outgroup at Yorkshire Cricket and the leaders didn't prevent the in-group from widening that psychological divide. We need to consider how we celebrate the diversity in our teams and our communities. If we only celebrate or promote one racial group, then it reinforces the historic social hierarchy and silently reinforces exclusion by keeping some groups in the shadows. In this insight from my interview with Owen Eastwood, it shows how an inclusive culture can be created, celebrated and sustained. Diversity and inclusion is quite fascinating for me. So diversity is easily accomplished maybe. You know, we can recruit um, and select diverse teams, but creating an inclusive culture is something completely different. And it comes back to belonging. Because an inclusive culture is where everybody feels seen, they feel they fit in, they feel they're respected. It's not when they feel like they're an outsider or that they're second class. That's not what it is. So to build that level of inclusion involves 
definitely the way that a leader would interact. Um, that's really important, of course. But also how we tell our story of us, our identity story. And the British Olympic team is an example. You know, I've worked with them now for a few years. And for Tokyo, we've been very focused on explaining, because we may be the most diverse team in Britain, across all um, facets of identity of an individual we probably cover. So we have been very intentional around bringing back from the heritage, these are ancestors that we are proud of and we love and uh, want you to feel connected to. So Charlotte Cooper, the first female Team GB Olympian in 1900, and the fact that she was deaf as well. Um, she won Wimbledon that year and she won two Olympic gold medals, amazing. Harry Edward, the first black Team GB Olympian in 1920, where for many years people had actually said it was Jack London in 1928, was actually Harry Edward. And an incredible character who grew up in Germany was interred as a teenager in the First World War. Um, but when he was selected for the team in 1920, not only was he selected, the Schefter mission actually appointed him as one of the five athletes in the leadership group. So that's a, that's a really powerful story of inclusion, really, isn't it, right from the start? And then we move through to the first Team GB female athlete, Anita Neal, first Muslim athlete, first Sikh, and so on and so on. Um, the first gay athlete or, or athlete that spoke about their sexuality in that way. And then, then obviously the Richardson Walshers in, in Rio were the first single-sex married couple. And what we're doing is we are creating this identity story where every individual can look at it and go, there's people there like me. And they were welcomed. And they were part of this. So I think those signals are huge rather than having a narrow version of who we are, making it inclusive. A good friend of mine once said to me that you know, when you build a great identity story, it's like a Christmas tree that you put up in front of people and allow them to come up and decorate it in their own way. And I think that is a beautiful expression of what an inclusive culture feels like. So this is a great example of how one sporting body has celebrated all the different diverse cultures and individuals that have contributed to their uh, environment and that means that the young players and young athletes coming into that environment can see role models and can see that it's going to be a safe place for them to express themselves and and take some risks sport can be so powerful and as nelson mandela said sport has the power to change the world it is more powerful than governments it speaks to people in a language they understand sport creates hope where once there was despair. They're such powerful words. And of course, cricket's governing bodies and leaders will need to seize this moment to drive change. But far from seeing cricket as the problem, if we take personal responsibility for the culture we all create, I'm confident that cricket can be part of the solution. Thanks for listening in. I'd genuinely love to hear your thoughts, so do join me on LinkedIn and share your perspective and your reflections on this episode. One of the earlier episodes of this show called Breaking Bias is another good opportunity to explore this topic further of psychology, bias and inclusion. So please check that out if you're interested. Well, we're heading into the final month of 2021 and I hope you're staying safe. Remember, if you'd like to activate your free month's membership pass to our leaders community, and library then just visit sportingedge.com and you'll find the members page and then use the code podcast 100 at the checkout and you'll have a wonderful alternative to netflix 
If I can help you and your business in any way, or you have a question that you'd like to share for one of the next shows, then please do drop me an email through to hello at sportingedge.com. If you found this podcast episode helpful, then please click subscribe and make sure you share it with those around you. Until next time, good luck. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Mind of Champions. Connect with Jeremy's LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram links in today's show notes to receive the latest insights from his work. If you'd like to get access to Sporting Edge's digital library or book Jeremy for a conference speech or webinar, then please visit www.sportingedge.com or email hello at sportingedge.com. 